Okay, so I am playing Russian Roulette here because I'm recording uh, on my iPad in my office and it uh, cuts me off at a certain amount of time, which is then I have to do all the splicing of an episode. And my mic, or at least the, the, the hookup to it, the, the wire, the plug, cable, um, is so finicky. And so it creates this like static uh, kind of hissing sound. So, um, just warning. Uh, anyway, on that note, welcome to Radical Humanity. My name is Ben Hoover, and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. And man, I I gotta say, the the creative flow is not stopping. There is there is there's not even a <laughs> there's not even a break system on this thing. Um, I've written. Like I think seven poems now, which I will read. I'll probably take a each episode, uh, or or dedicate a, a podcast episode to each poem, and maybe talk about it, um, or I will talk about it. And then and then I have two writings. One uh, one that I completely finished. The other one is actually uh, what I'm doing this podcast episode to, and I'm putting the final touches. And then I have well, this will be now the tenth podcast episode recorded. So. Um, so I need to put that out, uh, all of those things out, because, man, oh, man, it is just, it's, it's, I'm getting, like, cabin fever stir-crazy because I'm sitting on all this stuff, and I have yet to share it, and now I want to, now it's time. It's time to kind of release the valve and share it. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, what else do I have to say to that? Uh, anyway, so this is, this episode is kind of a hot off the press, just finished the, 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 the piece, the written piece, and I've got to talk about it. Now, as I've said before, I have, um, so in the ancient texts, which again, people call the Bible, um, and I think it's just, the Bible just limits it so much. They're just really these profound written personal experiences that have time-traveled, uh, that have, that have uh, aged and have stood with us, and there's some incredible messages in them. And even though that was part of my background and you were forced to read it, and not forced, but it was you were guilted in a way if you didn't read it, and, and it just lost life to me. It just it, it lost its color and it, it, its spark and its vibrancy. And so I'm like, eh, I don't have any interest in it. But until kind of I went in my own path and, and began to discover what I found to be the deeper meanings of life. Um, and, and anyway, um, and kind of, how do I best say it? When the braces, the training wheels, the um, security systems corroded and faded away, and I began to experience that life is much bigger than the con- confines of a religion, of a, of a religious tribe, that, that there's so much to learn from and feast off of, um, and there's so much diversity and richness in life, and, um, and I was taught that, that uh, you stay kind of within your tribe and you convert others to, to your belief system and because everyone else is lost, and it's just like, no, that's, uh-uh, that's not the case. In fact, I, in fact, I experienced myself as lost, and wandering, and I needed that to to begin to discover my passions and who I am and my genuineness and and my message, and also to experience that from others of all shapes and sizes and colors and feelings and sexualities and whatever. It's just like life is this rich harvest and experience of diversity, and um, and I lived very contained. Uh, in, in my little kind of faith tradition, and and which provided a sense of security and sustenance for a while until it's it it lost it lost its nutritional value, and and then I kind of found myself wanting to to explore uh, faith, and I have a very different uh, definition for faith, um, and and it punctured holes in my belief systems and. And, uh, and I needed that. Even though it was disorienting, um, it, it was also so life-enhancing. 
and, and, and widening and expanding. So, but all that to say is, is I still love the ancient writings and I don't delve into it. It just, there's these stories that uh, resonate in me still. They, they loiter and I know that that's, that's a signal to, to go into it, to endeavor, to explore what's there. And there's this one that has stuck with me for a long time. And I thought, okay, I, I've got to I've got to delve into it. But it's hard because it it often feels sometimes too big to even explore. Um, it holds like a lot of angles and dimensions, and and I think great meaning. And and but it sometimes feels like such a monstrosity. I can't even I can't even tackle it. I can't even climb this mountain. So I end up kind of pulled or seduced to, to go away from it. But it ends up being this kind of push-pull. It dra- draws me back in, and then I pull away, and it, I have this, this, this kind of uh, dance with this story in the ancient text. And it's happened about a, probably a, at least a dozen times. But I think I get drawn back to it because it's so, it's, it, it's so rich. It's, it's, I'm warmed by the sense that it's, it's rich. It's lavish. It has incredible messages. And the fact that it itches for me so badly, I've got I've to do some scratching, you know? Um, so the story, and uh, for those of you who might be familiar with it, whether you grew up in a religious uh, kind of land community or not, um, but, uh, but this fascinating story, it was, usually it was kind of like a singular lesson was extracted from its narrative, from the tale, and yet, and it often kind of, you know, the, the, the community I grew up in, the pastors would kind of emphasize the compassion or the forgiveness in the story, but I argue that I, I think it's beyond that. I don't even know if it even touches on that in a way. I feel like it, it, it almost limits the incredibility, the, the, the beauty, the profoundness of the story. And, um, but it, it touches on the way it was taught was that this man, Jesus, you know, offers this compassion and forgiveness. And, and this is a, this is a man, an anomaly in the world at the time that instigated volumes of controversy. I mean, his claims of himself and, and he, he pontificated these wild, unbelievable claims that, that stirred the masses and, and created uproar in the religious right, in the religious sector, um, and so, you know, even though he had such a shortly lived time on earth. But I'm going to argue that what's often been extracted has really overshadowed everything else enriching the story. That it's an amalgamation of many truths, many little trinkets, intricacies. And I don't know if the story really is about forgiveness. It might actually challenge something beyond that, deeper than that, more profound than that. It, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think that is usually the message that's taught kind of within the church is that it's all about forgiveness, God forgiving you, you know, because you're a screw-up and whatnot. And I think, in my opinion, I'm going to be blunt about this. I think it's bullshit. No, I think it's coming to the realization of how loved we are, how much we live in a benevolent, benevolent loving, uh, flowing, kind of connected universe like that. And it's waking up to that. And it's not about asking for forgiveness because there's something wrong with me. No, it's discovering what's right with me. What's, what's, what is true about me? What's genuine about me? What is loving about me? It's discovering the, the core, the heartbeat of that in life, in myself. So I think this story actually challenges more of the internal and systemic frameworks that we've been so entrenched in. So... This is the question I kind of ask myself. It's when I jump into the story and when I endeavor in it, what am I going to find? What, why do we even, why does it even inter- have any interest at all in me? Where, where is this going to take me? What, what will it reflect in my life? Um, and, and even on a greater scale, on a, on a larger, grander um, part, aspect of life globally. And is and I ask, is this even worth the time? I mean, even in my writing, it's like there's, I, when I write, it's this, I'm just following this narrative, and I'm, I'm more uncovering as I, I'm writing. I don't have the answer. I just keep going with it, and that's how my writing tends to be. So, now, this story really kind of has a thread 
with an unending pull in it. So there's this man. Um, so, uh, by the way, just a disclaimer here: this story is italicized in uh, in the book of John, and I think it's chapter. I always forget the the chapters. It doesn't even matter to me. Um, it just the story is what matters. Um, there's this section, and there, and so there's there's certain stories or phrasings that's italicized in, in these writings, and that means that they were it was added later and whatnot. So to me, I don't really care. The story's there for purpose and reason. It's not an accident. Um, I don't care the timing of what it was put in. But just so you know, when you look at that, it's italicized because it was added later. It wasn't quite kind of in the flow of what was already written. So anyway, back to the story. So the details of the story is that the Pharisees barge into Jesus' little kind of teaching session, and they drag in a woman, present her to Jesus that they've caught in the midst of some kind of rendezvous with a married man, some, some affair going on. And, but yet they did so intentionally to corner him and find him guilty on his response, because they were, man, were they after him. They wanted to squash him, and we'll talk about why. What, what internally, psychologically was happening in, uh, beneath the surface. So, but then Jesus has this weird response where he bends down and writes in the sand. He doesn't even give him an answer. And then in, the, in an intermission between his sand writing uh, activity, he stands up and he calls them out on their own blindness. And then, the, and, then the, and then after that, he goes back to the sand. Somehow he likes playing in it. And, uh, and the Pharisees and the scribes is, uh, that, that also tag-teamed with, him, with them uh, ended up leaving one by one, the older to the younger. And then, and, then, and then he has this little brief interaction with this woman, and then he sends the woman on her way and reassures her that he doesn't, doesn't, even, that he doesn't condemn her. And he, he sends her off to go and sin no more. So this is all really interesting. And you can read the story at face value, but if you turn more over, you start to discover what's happening back then, but also not just what's happening in the world, where the world started, where humanity started, and, and how we have those traces of that, those elements of that in our own personal lives, in our own selves. And, uh, and so, anyway, um, by the way, there's no formula at the end of this. So if you're listening to this and you're looking for, for answers, I, you're out of luck there. So I start out with my question, my, my, my own little rubric question of what the hell is going on here? So the Pharisees, that's where I want to kind of stay because they have this starring role. You know, they go from this third-degree interrogation uh, of Jesus, pushing him for an answer, and then it shifts to Jesus giving kind of a painful blow or slap of their own self-deception. Now, I want to go, I want to, I want to kind of add some details to the, to the Pharisees. Now, someone who's probably in the realm of Judaism or well-studied in the Bible, they, they might point out, oh, well, I'm off, but so be it. So now the Pharisees were kind of the big dogs of the day, but they were also a minority group. Now there were a lot of different communities kind of formed under the, the heading of Judaism. And, and each group established themselves differently. Uh, and, and so there was usually the, the bigger, more known groups were the, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Pharisees. And, and so there are all these little cultural collectives, these tribes, and they each differentiated themselves based off of how they viewed like doctrine based off of the Old Testament writings, as we call them today. And, uh, and so they, they formed these distinguished clubs based on their interpretation and their practice. And, uh, and it centered around the, the law and, and the other writings within the sacred scriptures. But that's not really so different from, uh, from what we have today. I mean, there's tons of different religions, and there's tons of different little, uh, little dividers, uh, little tribe dividers even within that, that everyone kind of has their split. I mean, even if in the realm of Christianity, you have, there's Protestants, there's Catholics, but then there's more even beyond that. So the labels are just unending. And so, um, but that's what happens, is people kind of part ways, and they start forming their groups with kind of a similar belief system, and it feels safe and contained, and it, it serves a function and purpose for a time. Um, and it's nice. I mean, let's be honest. Like, 
I, I'm not going to lie. I like being around people that have an open, similar mindset to me, and I can talk freely about some of the things, and we can connect. But I struggle sometimes when there's a real difference. And that's a challenge in me that's being worked out of how do I also express myself without, without it being like I have, to, um, I have to convert the person to see it my way. And that's, that's been a struggle because some, it feels like an instant connection and the loneliness dissolves when, when one has someone that believes similarly as I do. Um, but when that doesn't happen, it can create this tension instead of I'd love for there and myself to be an openness to just hearing the stories behind someone else's way of seeing the world. Because there's something for me to learn for myself. Um, so back to the story or back to the Pharisees, at least. So the Pharisees were kind of like, they were kind of like the religious consultants. That's my language. They were, uh, at, of the time, they were often the sources of wisdom and knowledge when it came to the Torah, which is the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis all the way to Numbers and whatnot. Uh, it's like Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Exodus, Numbers. Um, and and then also the, the, the writings of the prophets and... Those are a lot of the first name writings that you'll find, um, and then other writings. Now, also within the Pharisaical camp was these different strains of thought and practice, where it ranged from kind of the more strict, rigid, to maybe a little bit more of an open hand um, understanding. And they were, and and Pharisees had both, just like to all of us, they had a good and bad side. They had a light and dark side, um, and they were helpful in the community, and respected. Now, while other formations really kind of treated the, the law in literal fashions, like the Sadducees, like they would believe the Laura, the Laura, the Torah, was the, that was the gospel, and they stuck to that, and they didn't veer outside of that, and they took everything literally and read the law very literally in its practice. Um, but the Pharisees tended to kind of approach it more liberally in adapting the law's kind of essence Maybe the, maybe the underlying message to novel situations rather than a strict rendering of the, the decrees. And um, so, so that's kind of nice because if you think about, like, would you really want to literally follow the, like, take literally the whole eye for an eye? Like, that's how, that's how some of the, uh, some people understood that. And, and I imagine they enacted that. And... <laughs> Carry that out. So, but no, no, thank you. Would not want to go that route. Now, uh, so the Pharisees really girded themselves in the studies of the law, the prophets, the writing, that whole trio, and they were devout studiers of it. Now, they might say that that was kind of their their the life's passion. So they were so conscious of it, um, and. Uh, so conscious of it in, in study form and then also in it, uh, and also daily execution. But now I want to go even further back. So let's rewind, kind of like they do in movies where they start out with a scene and then they give you more backstory to it. So let's, let's reverse. And, and let's go before even these clans had any kind of formation or presence on earth. So I want to talk about these laws that they were, you know, that, that, created so much division and, and separation and that the Pharisees wrapped their lives around. Now, the law within the realm of Judaism was kind of contained in the, in the first five books of the ancient texts, right, known as the Torah. And the ordinances from this added up to probably well over 600 commands given to Moses, you know, the, the guy with the beard that stood on Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments and then was given, you know... Uh, <laughs> 600 more laws because people needed it. They, were, they needed some direction here. Um, and and I, I would say that it was more, um, and, and this happened while they were doing some, some nice vacation wandering in the, in the wilderness there in the desert. It's a joke. They hated it. So these decrees that were given by the divine, they were kind of like the, the formative pieces, the building blocks to harmonizing their community. They were like the bone, the muscle, the ligament. Uh, to, to structuring their tribe. And, and I see it as, in a way, it really kind of created security and direction. It gave guidance that helped the, helped the collective, the, the, the family there, find their footing and navigate a lot of interpersonal struggles within the group because humanity at the time, there was slavery. I mean, it, it, was, 
it just, there was a real derailment of humanity. I mean, there was pillaging and rapes and, and uh, slavery and, and uh, um, wars. And, I mean, it wasn't quite the safe universe. And so here was this group that started to section off, and now they were given these sort of divinely ordained rules to help them kind of figure out how to do this whole human thing. And these laws were... Um, helped kind of work out relational instabilities in a way and, and discord, power dynamics, um, land ownership, slavery, uh, um, you know, intentional, unintentional acts of, of hurt or harm, property, murder, theft, shame, judgment, all of that, right? They had the, the cleansing rituals and purifying rituals and everything because that was, that was so, a lot of it was so ingrained in society. So so basically what was happening is they were given these rules to kind of sort of evolve in a way, but it was still it was still uh relative to the way humanity operated in the world. So it didn't just, you know, destroy everything. These were these were laws that were given but to help them kind of grow past that. Um so so kind of liken it to even as a parent, if you're a parent and it's like a parent who brings structure to their young ones. So they can, I mean, why? Why, why are the rules, why are they so naturally given to the family, right? It's to create containment and develop, help the child develop solidly, to feel a safe of safety, that uh, allows security to happen, and, and for them to have kind of more of a grounding and order in the world. So the Hebrew tribe there were kind of like young children in a way, and I would say in the psychological, emotional, relational sense. And they were developmentally young, so to speak. And you required very like nuanced, detailed rules to help them find their path. I mean, we're, we're not talking about like IKEA, the IKEA status uh, 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 or the in, kind of instructions that you know create disorientation in a person and frustration. This, I mean, this was like detailed stuff. I mean, even numerically detailed. But now, here's the thing. The laws were kind of like training wheels or starter kit. It served an initial purpose and function to create structure for a time before evolving into, into something more profound, that the law was meant to, in a, in a way, the law was meant to be rebelled against. And, and, it, and I'll, I'll say why. It was meant to draw the person more into an inner way of living in the world, an inner, into their inner self, um, marked by love, marked by care, marked by genuineness. So the law served this role, another role I see it, to unearth these profound messages that are embedded in them. But one has to have an, like kind of a conflict with the law, an experiential conflict to, to see that. If not, they stay just following it literally to a T in a way, or they're always kind of adhering to it. Like, what does it say? And how am I supposed to follow this? And it's like we need this hand-holding kind of in life. But eventually, we have to let go and discover for ourselves what life is about and how to live. So, the, But the laws were, were there for a reason. It, it helped kind of give some support in the beginning, kind of a safety net. Um, but I, but I, here's what I argue is that rather than living out of a strict infused attachment to the law, and by the way, I hope when you're listening to this, you're realizing this, this very much happens today. This isn't some relic, some archaic thing in the past. It happens today. Um, so what happens is when, uh, instead of living in the strict fuse attachment, instead it's to create an inner struggle and questioning, doubt, to kind of fight against the system in a way. It, it's it's n naturally there to provoke an inner awakening of the self, to find the truth, to find one's own authenticity. Um, if, a, if a child, if we go back to sort of the parent-child dynamic, if a child, as they age and they get older, and they, they continuously, they live rigidly, in their adherence to the rules that, that are governed by their parents, they, it creates a lot of problems. They haven't tapped into an inner rebellion that gets, that gets expressed outwardly, needed, that's necessary to find themselves, to break away from the, the sheltered life they were given or the shelter they grew up in. Instead, they live stunted and they live externally governed, meaning everyone else and what they say 
can sway, dissuade or persuade them. It, they're, they're, it's, it's everyone outside, externally focused, externally driven by them, that they, the people outside of themselves steer the ship. And it perpetuates this psychological dependency. I need others to say yes or no or like or approve or not approve or whatever. Um, so this has to be broken the, in order, in order to, to live out of a sense of self. Um, now, uh, so unraveling this a little bit more, to find that inner source and guidance requires disillusionment, meaning we don't even know what the hell we believe anymore, and why are the laws there, and what's the point, and doubt and disorientation and anger in order to discover one's own genuineness and passion and their own personal message on earth, meaning what's my expression? What, what's my voice in here? What do I have to say? What do I want to share and give to the world that I'm excited to share and give? And that comes from, a, like, again, a personal knowing and uncovering of that. So the laws are meant to fade into something more internalized, natural, genuine. But they can't, we can't access that until we go through the disorienting valleys. So it requires us to leave our external home in order to find, uh, and its familiar comforts, in order to find an inner home. And so the laws were, I think, uh, cleverly given in a way. I mean to help, but, but cleverly given to invite questioning and conflict as the prerequisites to really experiencing and, and discovering its deeper meaning. So now let's fast forward all the way to today. And as you know, we have billions of regulations that run the world. We got laws that are an active force, active dynamic, in our society. They're exponentially growing. There's more laws. You hear more of this, and it's all in all different facets of life, um, ranging from the business end of things to the medical end of things. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unending. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. And it's being in laws. These laws are continuously tailored and revised. But I've, I've had these moments where I stop and I wonder, do we ever ask ourselves why? Like, why, why the law? Why are laws there? And, and, and why it's unrelenting increase? Why do we have another you know, law that's, or multiple laws that are multiple regulations that are, that are, um, that are in the, uh, being produced and manufactured? Well, I want to go back now. I know, stay with me. I want to rewind again to the origins of it. So remember that its purpose was to create safety and foundation and kind of in a way freedom. Um, but my question is, is that actually doing its job? Is it actually being achieved? Well, my hunch is beneath, my theory is, beneath its complexity lies something, uh, lies something else. And, and um, that, that is really the catalyst to these ever-growing uh, mandates that govern and order our lives. And if I were to travel on a personal note, into myself, I might find that underlying this need for control, for structure, for order, for restitution, for resolve, lies these tenets uh, of fear and pain and, and that reside, live in me in an unsettled state. That if we really go to the root of this, what happens when we demand restitution, when we demand to be seen, when we demand, and I'm not saying the law is bad, that's not what I'm saying at all, but, but what if harbored beneath these laws are these, are, is the presence of fear and pain, kind of throbbing in agony, raging for a balm that's going to soothe this, this, this ravaging ache? Could it be the, underneath the laws there's this expressed pain but also our primal need, our, our deeply primal need to be seen, to be nurtured in our misfortunes and struggles and deep hurts, to find solace. And I wonder, too, then, if the laws are kind of these blatant demarcations of, uh, to reconcile the powerlessness that we feel inside. Um, uh, but, but, but not just, I'm not saying that it's just isolated us, I mean, like, that we experience on a global level in our families and our systems, that co-create so much of this struggle and this, this interpersonal conflict. So for me, now turning back then to the, the origins of these, these, these systems of regulations, we might discover then 
that for the Hebrew people, their initial role was to help them create structure, to deal with the pain, the struggle, the and because they didn't know how to do it on a vulnerable, human-connected way. So it was a way of kind of grounding them, of helping them kind of discover the roots of their humanity, this, this pulsating, primal desire for harmonized connection. Um, and when we don't know how to work out pain together, we don't know how to work through... The, the, the expressions of those pains and men together, um, it'll turn into something more litigious. Um, this demand that I, I get something from you and, and, and seek justice and vengeance because we don't. We don't know how to uh, uh, navigate that. Um, so the laws kind of are in place to sort of uh, um, try, try to achieve that. But as you realize, it just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing and growing, and then I find it more constricting than it is free. Um, so humanity uh, had, had been, back then, had been really derailed off course, and so the laws were kind of a recalibration to bring them back. Um, and so it now makes sense then, when we kind of start to understand the, the, the Pharisees, the inner workings, that... Um, it gives us a little more context of what the law meant to them. Because we often see in the ancient text Jesus like referencing the hypocritical ways of the Pharisee. When he, go, when he does his Sermon on the Mount address, um, his, his big old you know, State of the Union address to people, he's often, uh, uh, I wouldn't, well, I'm going to say jabbing, but he's, he's, he's directing a lot of what he's saying towards the Pharisees because that was the way they operated. Um, and so, so he's, he's often referencing their hypocritical ways and then he's entering a confrontational dialogue with them. And, and then he's also becomes a victim. He always is escaping somehow, uh, these pharisaical plots to, to kill him, to extinguish him from society. So these stories really highlight that there's a tension between Jesus and the religious elite. Um, so, which then for me creates a lot more questions that, might kind of even enrich more of a widening understanding within this brief narrative, right? I've given a lot, right, behind this this backstory, or the, the, a lot of background to the story. So my questions are, why all this conflict? I mean, why do they have issue with Jesus? I mean, why are they hell-bent on, on, you know, just squashing him out of existence? So let's go a little bit more into the Pharisees then. So although they were liberal in their adaptation of the law, they ascribed to it with great devotion energy. I mean, their lives orbited around these, quote-unquote, divinely given sanctions. Their loyalty to law was kind of, was, was equated at the, like, equal match at the level of their loyalty to the divine. It was synonymous. Um, and so, but my words... It, in order to maintain acceptance and avoid reprimand from the divine, because they feared the divine um, and, and doing wrong or, or venturing away from, from the divine's uh, decrees there, they did, in a way, my wording, what mom or dad expected of them. That makes sense? So it kind of goes back to what I was talking about, about um, children that grow up it just religiously holding on, fastidiously holding on to the rules of their parents, and there's no sense of self in there. It's just always lived for the parents. So, in a way, the Pharisees were doing the same thing. They were living for the divine and externally focused and driven in that way. And so, so the laws to them were, that was the divine in a way. Um, but here's something even more fascinating, that the Pharisees also had their little loopholes to getting their way. And they stayed convinced to themselves, that they were still doing it right. And they were known to add more laws as well and rules in the already exhausting list. I mean, isn't 600 plus rules enough? I mean, shit, why do you want to add even more than that? It just feels like it's going to get more restricting and rigid. But here's where I throw a little bit of kind of some, some, uh, some new thoughts into this. Remember that statement that Jesus makes in his Sermon on the Mount? where he dresses, you know, like, you know, those who lust, like, you know, after another woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart, because, again, he was addressing the Pharisees, because they thought, well, I'm avoiding adultery, 
Now, again, I'm just talking about, I'm not saying right or wrong things. I'm just talking about what's going on in, in, these, uh, in these statements that are being made. What's happening? We're just kind of adding more story and detail to it. So this is not kind of an opinion of what's right or wrong. It's just addressing the duplicitous nature of the Pharisees. So, so when Jesus addresses this whole adultery thing, right, because they thought, well, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm justified or I'm freed. I, I, I haven't committed adultery. Well, he, he references at the fact that their lust begins in their heart. Why? Because when they were married, they'd find another pretty woman and they would want to go after her. But unfortunately, they're married, so they can't. Well, guess what? Right? Because they were so legally bound to the law. That, that's what they believe. They're so rigidly bound to it. So um, so they, in order to, you know, avoid uh, deviating away from the law, breaking the law by divorcing their, their wife, with whom they grew dissatisfied, they came up with these really, it was kind of clever, <laughs> these plans to add all these additional laws for the benefit of themselves to enable them to get rid of their spouse so they can move on to the next beauty that walked by. So, for instance, if she cooked a bad meal, burned something, whatever, well, guess what? It's in written law. If, they, if she did anything of that nature, whoop, they just hit the relational eject button. It was kind of their escape route in a way to try to cover their, their ass on the law side of things. Now, let me also paint another image here uh, that uh, for the whole situation. Is, have you ever kind of played a game with someone younger than six? I had a client that was, I think he was like six, a little bit younger. Anyway, but, but and, and in the, the, and we'd play this game where we kick this ball around. And man, I tell you what, when you play a game with a six-year-old, you have to really kind of like adapt and adjust to the constantly changing rules. Because <laughs> otherwise you'll just kind of fall into a state of frustration. But, um, but where I become victim to the child's frequent kind of rule amendments and, and additions, the reason why that happens is because really the goal is for them to win. He wanted to win. So he, what he does is he kind of almost creates more of a helplessness in myself while he increases more of the laws and, and, and sort of clips my wings so he can, so he can, so he can be satisfied as he, as he scores the prize. So, um, so in a way... This is kind of like how the Pharisees were. It's not that unfamiliar. They wanted to get what they wanted, but the law was holding them down. So, and unfortunately, they kind of faced this fork in the road conflict with, do I follow the law? Or do I kind of find a roundabout way? And they did. They believed, they were honestly convinced that they were, they were doing it right. Um, and so, but beneath this was that there was such a fear and need for external acceptance. They didn't tap into this rebellion to struggle, to find their true self, what they wanted, and um, what they truly wanted deep inside, and, and even how to do relationships and what intimacy went. And, you know, I mean, covered the range and the ground, the spectrum of our human self. They didn't venture into that. They stayed kind of shallowly attached to the law. And they also broadcasted their piety to all, you know, to all about their unwavering devotion. And they both neglected and ignored, though, their inner self, which, if they discovered, ran contrast in a way to the decrees. And that's what Jesus was poking at. Now, the Pharisees, they, again, ran a religious tribe that was orchestrated by outer control. Right? They was all about pleasing God, while working the system in clandestine ways. So they were fed by external praise, and I mean, they were like I said, they were the big dogs. They were the man on stage. They were the they were the they were the, they could do no wrong in a way, um, and they lived, but they lived a sanctimonious life. You know, the roots of the law lived in shallow layers for them. It didn't travel farther than that, and and so the inner work needed to to uncover a beautiful, rich, freeing life, genuine life, and discovering their true selves, it suffered obstruction. And it just functioned at the surface. So, um, you know, where they held to the laws and held others to the standard of the law. And they took 
roles at the surrounding community as kind of the enforcers of the divine standards. But they were blind to the richer meanings. Meanings that really conveyed an inner and outer need, sustenance, fed by compassion and embrace and care and love and explore and uh, be able to explore and experiment and one that was marked with genuineness and unity. Instead, the law created for them security, containment, a feeling. It stuffed them with a feeling and belief of specialness that set them apart from others. And yet it perpetuated an inner disconnection and in a, in a disconnection on an interpersonal level, an obstruction to living out of this more vulnerable, open, explorative, honest position in life. So then that, all that backstory then, that's a lot, right, leads to this actual story. When the Pharisees burst in and interrupt Jesus' gathering. And when they burst into this, into his, his little, uh, little teaching gathering he's doing, he, he interrupts with this woman they bring in that was supposedly caught in an affair. And so this, this little show-and-tell moment that they had was really their intentions were to really corner Jesus and expose his blasphemous ways. Which... Then I asked, why? I mean, why were they so threatened by him? Why, why, I mean, why? What, what, was, what was going on behind the scenes? I mean, let the guy do the work, for Christ's sake, literally and figuratively. I mean, he's loving on people. He's doing some cool miracle things. He's bridging the gap between, you know, the, the, the ostracized and, and the, the, the outcasted, the outsiders. I mean, he's, he's, I mean, he's just kind of, Touching people with this, with this enigmatic love that that's so foreign to them. I mean, who cares? Let, let him do what he's going to do. Except, obviously, the Pharisees cared a lot. So much so that they were trying to destroy him. And they were convinced he was possessed and governed by dark forces. And then he was in, they were become enraged because, you know, he, was, he claimed Jesus he claimed he had these divine connections. You know, that he and, he and God go way back kind of thing. And according to their reactions, you know, Jesus broke all the rules. I mean, he was kind of infiltrating their, you know, their, their solidly built fortresses. Supposedly solidly built. And so he, here he was, kind of a miscreant, an outlaw, an antibody to their deep-seated securities. But all he was doing was being genuine. He found, he found his message. He woke up to life, what life is. He was expressing this love, and, uh, and, 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 you know, but also he was confronting the hidden and de- deceitful nature of the, the pious there who created these ivory towers that kind of segregated them uh, from others, created disunity or perpetuated it. And, and he, he cultivated this inclusivity, indiscriminate connections with others, especially the outsiders. But that broke all the boundary lines that the Pharisees created. In fact, um, Jesus tapped into, really, and lived out the innate messages infused in the laws that the religious supposedly were well-knowledged in and fastidiously studied and clung to. And so where they judged him for breaking the law, uh uh-uh, he actually lived it out in a deeper internalized way. Um, in, a, in a natural way. So he got it. He woke up to the realities of life, what the true meaning is, and the very substance within the law he ingested, he absorbed, and he was an anomaly in this world. And he lived out of this core knowing um, that he was connected to all. That he, that he was no different. He wasn't separate. He wasn't above all. He was connected. And he sought to... to extinguish the disconnections in the world. Right? So he was a conduit of love and care, which, by the way, when we realize we all have that in our, just sometimes have an obstruction to it. So the Pharisees were clearly obstructed in their self-awareness of this. And the genuineness and love that Jesus naturally imbued shook the foundations of the reverent there. So they march into his forum and they present this woman who they 
believe transgressed the law, and they give him a sharp reminder of what the law says. And it says, the law says we're supposed to kill people like this. And they really pontificate to him that they were, they were to execute those who participate in adulterous acts, and pressuring him for his own personal answer. What do you say about this? Now, it's interesting to note, first off, let me, let me, or let me put a little asterisk there. The Pharisees actually exposed their own flaws in the systems they built. Because right? the law actually stated in there that both participants that were, you know, entangled, embroiled in a in an affair there, well they were they were to be they were to be killed. But where was the man? So in some way, it's interesting that I wonder if this story really illuminates the Pharisees, the religious uh, the twists and manipulations when it came to the laws. And I would say even more to my theory, even expose the patriarchal leanings inhabiting and contaminating humanity. So there's, this, there's also this like political statement going on too, um, and, this, and this gender issue statement as well, where the men believe themselves to be higher than women, right? and they use the laws to, to subdue women. And here, this story kind of really shatters that, pokes holes in that, addresses that, flips it on its head. And so, uh, so Jesus um, uh, really kind of, again, drives a, drives a sword into all of this. But it did expose this sort of patriarchal leaning, like why the woman, not, why not the man as well? So they were pushing Jesus to answer, to expose his deviant ways and to trap him and secure proof that he was guilty of defying and being an antithesis of the very systems that, that they believed were employed by the divine. But however, what was perceived as him breaking the rules, again, was, it was actually this expression of having access to higher register of loving and being in the world. But the Pharisees wanted to end it because they were terrified of losing their fortresses. So Jesus bends down the sand and writes, and then he stands up after they indignantly push for an answer, and he says, well, if anyone's guilty of sin, if any of you are guilty of sin, go on, kill her, throw the stone. And then he goes back to writing. I mean, it's just pretty nonchalant stuff. Like, what the hell? You know, you're, you're, you're about to be devoured. I mean, they're trying to kill you. But somehow he does this statement, and he goes right back to whatever he's drawn in the sand. Maybe some pretty pictures. Actually, I think there's something more intentional he was writing, but I don't quite know what that is. I think uh, there's some people that have explained what that might be, but that's not my focus. So, um, so he bends down, and the Pharisees just end up leaving. Now, what's interesting is that, again, the writer doesn't list any specifics of his penmanship. I don't know if he's writing something... Uh, from the Torah. I don't know if he's writing their names in the sand. That's what it's kind of alluded to before. Um, but nonetheless, he stands up and confronts them on their self-deception, on their blindness. And his poignant confrontation is enough to just suck the venom, siphon the, the venom and force right out of their plans, and they walk away with kind of a sort of in a tail-between-their-legs manner. Now, this brings then the attention to the actual statement he makes. Here he highlights the, the blatant blindness that they have of their own selves. And they res, because they resided in their religious grandiosity. That because they lived camped out in this, they forgot their own realities. That they're actually human too. That they're vulnerable. That they have insecurities at the core. And so Jesus' retort touched a conflict that exists in the very fabric of their own personal lives. In a way, he knocks him down to earth. Kind of this powerful, exposing blow that they've created an image of themselves that they've fabricated and isn't authentic. And that the religious elite were not above this woman that they had judged, but instead they were just as human and just as vulnerable and just as wanting and just as lost and desiring. And I'm not saying she was lost. I'm just saying that that kind of brought that reality to them. And here they mask their own hungers and their in, internal conflicts and their vulnerabilities and their fears behind the veil of religious piety, as well as hidden behind their judgments of others. And so Jesus rips off this mask to, um, 
to uncover what toils behind this frail covering. So now Jesus and the woman are left, and he stands to engage her. And in an almost rhetorical manner, he then uh, he asks her, like, where'd they all go? Who condemns you? I mean, really, it's almost rhetorical, and she says, no one. And then he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, here Jesus displays a level of connection, I argue, that primarily, primarily, sound like a Texas Texan, but primarily um, when one lives like rooted in the realms of love. I believe his responses are rich and, 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 and give the person dignity, shattering sort of this deeply ingrained, like disharmonious, segregated ways that, li- that exist in humanity. And he invests no energy in her behavior or evaluating it. He's got, he's got no investment in that. But rather, he embraces her with love. And he, and he supplants the judgments that have been so ingrained in humanity with this kind of embrace. Unlike the Pharisees, who lived in this insecurity, and they were governed by an external fixation and this penchant to enforce of a strict following of the rules and pointed out in others, here Jesus, that had no, no importance to him. He lived connected within, and he was guided out of this place. And so from this position, he moved in the world with, with affection, with love for it, with care, and also offering an invitation to others to experience this kind of way of being in the world, this kind of freedom. So one can look at this, this, this last this ending here and sort of a negative connotation, this kind of go and stop what you're doing when he says sin no more. But I'm going to argue that, that, that it's not what we, how we might read it or what we might initially think about it. That, that actually this, it's revealed in this Lasonic confrontation towards the Pharisees that expose their inner worlds, their hidden truths that, that he kind of slapped them with actually displayed a profound, profound value for her and care. And in fact, he emphasized that he doesn't even judge her. And while in this confrontation, he risks his own life. I mean, here he speaks the truth to these Pharisees very well, knowing that, you know, at least putting himself in the risk of, of being destroyed by them, by these vicious, devouring draws. And he says what he says. Right? So, actually, to me, I think Jesus is saying something incredibly life-changing. And now that this woman has had this beautiful, profound encounter with love, which was an aberration of her day and time for a woman, for a man to stand up for her, for a man to protect her in that way, or, or give her value in that way, that's, I guess I should put it that way, um, man, that was an anomaly. That was foreign. So instead, in my opinion, the, the message, I reframe it as go and be free. Free from judgment and shame, free from the system, free from a need to cure some inner lack in yourself. Right? Because I don't know, there's a story to her of why she was having an affair. I don't know. There's more to it than that. But free to discover her true self. That is the way, this, this, the, that's the way I read this send-off. And so it ends in mystery. It, leave, it leaves us, the reader, with just this affectionate goodbye, this caring goodbye. And who knows what this brief, enigmatic experience had for this woman, but if I were to guess, it lifts some imprint that created an inner revolution and evolution in her. So when I expand this story from this archaic tale into my own life's radius, and I enter into the narrative for myself, and I see my own self imbued in this, I can see that there's this side to me that has the Pharisee. It reflects a part of me that lives fused in an external sense, pleasing others, doing, doing everything right for others, seeking to satisfy those outside of my own inner walls. I can see that, that how the Pharisees would build securities around the rules given. It brought comfort. And that evolved in a way of using that to be seen by others, to find a sort of specialness or otherness, right? But again, it was so contingent on the external. They didn't discover their own specialness that lived in them regardless of what someone said about them. It was still so focused on the other 
um, uh, um, highlighting that, uh, praising that. And so they, they built this out of this place of following the law to feel special and, and this otherness, really to hold these fragile worlds in place, these untapped, unexplored realms inside themselves. And so, but their inner lives suffered neglect for the sake of pleasing the external sources. And instead of delving deeper into the heart of the laws, they found themselves captive to the content. And so out of that, it created the safety and containment. And that when that was threatened, man, yeah, that, that screwed things up for them. And so the religious collective touches a part of me that I found security in doing things the right way, dictated by the surrounding community. For me, it was, oh, I'm not going to have sex until I'm married, and I'm going to stay a virgin, and anybody else, you know, is you know, lost, and they're screwing up, and it's like, that's the way I saw it. But here I was, I was missing out on some good, good sexual experiences, and learning and growing, and finding, finding connection, and yeah, no, but it was, it was constricted and regulated by this is the right way to do it. And so it fabricated for me, honestly, this feeling of power and fullness as I juxtaposed my own righteous ways with those who seem to have quote-unquote deviated from that. But hidden beneath this, in, this internalized, this absorbed, indoctrinated um, belief system and, and this, this armor that I held, it, what lived in me was really this malnourished self hungry to discover life, to find my own personal passions and my own genuineness and what makes me tick. Because I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think back. I did. I grieved this at one point when I thought back to some of the missed experience I could have had to connect with women in, in, a, in, uh, in a sexual way. To have those interactions and not fear that so much. To, to be able to engage freely with them that it could lead to having sex and, and, and it could be beautiful and I'd learn and grow from that. But no, it was, it was heavily guarded and protected by, nope, there's, there's the right way, is, which is what I was taught. But then once I started to differentiate from that, I began to realize, oh, there's a whole world out there unexplored. And um, so, but this, so this hunger burned within and it was often constricted by fear and judgment. And it closed me in really tightly. But then, as I've experienced, or others, then there's these anomalous encounters with love that come in a different form and shape beyond, beyond your safe little kind confines in the tribe. right? Um, that permeate and destroy these fabricated systems and these entrenched judgments that have steered life. That this love comes in sort of an otherworldly form an unassuming form, instigating fault lines, fractures, and the very securities built. Growing up in the Christian, like under the Christian Christian roof, the church, I guess I should say, the church Christianity roof, um, it was like, nope, it, you'd only be, if it's a certified Christian who wrote this book, then I'm good, then I'll read it. But if it's someone outside of that, nope, nope. And yet there's people out there that are discovering these incredible truths and offering it to humanity that never even, wouldn't even consider themselves Christian or whatnot. And so, so for me, having left the church, having explored the world on a grander scale and what's out there, man, I, I learned from so many people that probably wouldn't have even been able to enter in to the church world. And I'm thankful that, it's, that there's this opening to experience uh, the, a greater feast of life. So, but when first faced, though, with these kind of enigmatically, these enigmatic experiences, right, those who express care in a way so foreign to us, it's deep, in, uh, in deeply connected ways that break the barriers of judgments, that, that manufactured security, it throws everything off course. I mean, immediately, you know, I have moments where I'll seize in defense and claim it's wrong, and, and wanting to destroy the unfamiliar, but underlying this for me is terror as I become confronted with what I don't know, what's unfamiliar to me, that I'm a stranger in this world. <laughs> I, I have, there's so many uncovered, unexplored, uncharted lands in life. And what I discovered and what we might discover is as we enter into more of a personal exploration of this reaction, 
we might find how little we know and how untouched this kind of love is for us. That someone that we've judged that seems incapable of loving or is lost is actually not, is rich with love, is offering that, is doing some incredible things in the world and touching people, and yet didn't fit the, the, the you know, it didn't fit the club's standards and rules. So for love, love sometimes infiltrates our tightly coiled paradigms in surprising and unassuming ways. It invites us to travel deeper into our reactions, to, to surrender ourselves to the unfamiliar, and to loosen our grip on the safeties we hold firmly to. So, and for maybe... Those that we have judged, now they become prophets of self-truth for us, mirrors into our own obstructions that stop us from going and being free, from hearing that word, go and be free. So, on that note, till next time.